Let's try that again. Good afternoon. Something's funky with the sound system today. It's okay? All right. Famous last words. Can you think of some famous last words? For example, Julius Caesar. <laughs> what is uh, what supposedly did he say right before he died or was murdered? Do you remember? Where's Stephen? Oh, he's downstairs. According to Shakespeare, he said, A2 Brute, right? What about Ned Kelly, the famous Australian rebel who supposedly was in the prison that's uh, where we live now, actually, in Coburg. What is going on? <laughs> Ned Kelly, does anyone know what his last words were? No? So, uh, according to, well, depending on which version of the story you hear, either he said, ah, well, I suppose it has come to this, or such is life. What about Raphael, the Italian artist? Anybody know what his last word was before he died? He said, happy. And Marie Antoinette, the famous um, princess or queen, I suppose, of France. Do you know what her last words were before she was guillotined? Apparently on her way to the platform, she accidentally stepped on the executioner's toes. And so she said, pardon and moi, monsieur. And that was her last words. What about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes? What do you think his last words were? He turned to his wife and said, you are wonderful, and then clutched his heart and died. And then Winston Churchill, anyone know what his last words were? He said, I'm bored with it all. Then he died. Last words are usually famous, or and no one said hasta la vista, but there's that too. But usually last words are famous because, you know, you have very little time left. And so that last bout of energy required to say your last kind of message to the world um, is usually listened to quite carefully because um, it's your last words. And in fact... Um, there's even some people who have collected the last words of those who are uh, executed. In America, we have death penalty. And so um, sometimes prisoners are executed and somebody wrote down everybody's last words before they're executed. Now, my sermon today, the title um, is called The Three Thieves. The Three Thieves. And it's about three criminals who were condemned to die with very little time left, and we're going to be looking at what their last words were, what their last words were. So I want you to turn with me, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along the screen as well, and um, I'll make sure that you can catch up with us. Mark chapter 15, verses 22 to 32. Now Mark is one of the four books in the Bible that record the story of, of a man named Jesus. And this is what it says. This is the end of uh, Jesus' life. And it says, And they brought him, that is Jesus, to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, which is nine o'clock in the morning, and they crucified him. 
and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking amongst themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And the last sentence says, Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Here's Jesus crucified in between two robbers or thieves. And some versions will say rebels or criminals. And, you know, these individuals weren't just, you know, people who happened to steal a loaf of bread like Jean Valjean. No, these were individuals who had murdered as well as stolen. You see, crucifixion was a crime that was reserved for the worst criminals. And so when, when it says robbers or rebels, you have to imagine that these would be individuals who in today's society would be those who would be sentenced for life. Criminals who had done atrocious acts against other people. And that's why the crucifixion, which was a very brutal punishment, was for such individuals like these. And the, the idea of the crucifixion, I don't know who came up with it, but it was terrible. What they did, um, and forgive me for going into just a little bit, but once they whipped and flogged the individual, they would then uh, pierce the nails through the wrists. And so once the person would be hanging on the cross, and of course their feet have also been nailed together on the cross, the difficulty was not just that they're obviously in a lot of pain from their raw backs, you know, on the on the ragged wood you know when we look at the cross today it's all nicely polished right in the perfect symmetrical shape but back then it was just two pieces of of log just kind of roped together so you can imagine how rough that would have been against your back let alone a raw back that has just been flogged but the really the most difficult part of crucifixion was in addition to that that raw pain that you'd experience from the wrists and the feet was the fact that it was very difficult to breathe I don't know if you've ever heard this, but the real kind of torture of the crucifixion is that because you're held um, like this, right? And because gravity is pulling your body down, but because the nails are keeping you in place, what would happen is that your, um, your arms being outstretched like this kept your respiratory muscles in a constant state of inhalation. So imagine if you're constantly going... At some point, you have to exhale, right? So in order for them to exhale, they have to actually draw their shoulders up. Now, in order for them to do that, you can imagine how painful it would have been for them to put their back against that rough wood, scrape it up, and of course, their nail on their feet is keeping them from being able to really draw themselves up. So every breath literally was painful. And that's why you, you see when Jesus was on the cross, that because it was so painful for him to breathe, let alone talk, he says short sentences like, I thirst, right? Or, behold your mother. Behold your son. Right? Or, it is finished, right? You can imagine short sentences because it's very difficult for them to breathe and to, and to speak and to, you know, you can't um, go on a long monologue when you're on the cross, but in addition to the fact that Jesus was going through that much pain, have you thought about 
the two thieves next to Jesus, it was just as difficult for them to breathe and to talk as well. So we know about the precious last words of Jesus, but what about these two individuals? What were their precious last words that were spoken right before their death? If you go to Luke chapter 23, and I have that on the screen for you as well. Luke chapter 23. It says in verse 39, Then one of the criminals, so one of the uh, ones that were crucified next to Jesus, who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now, if you look in the original language, that word blasphemed him, it's in uh, what's called the imperfect verb tense. In other words, he kept blaspheming him. He repeatedly blasphemed him. So can you imagine, not only is he using his precious breath to insult Jesus, and this isn't a, a statement of faith saying, save us, right? This is mocking. This is sarcasm. If, are you really the son of God? If you're the son of God, if you're the savior, then save us. He was mocking him, not once, but repeatedly. Can you imagine, in order for him to go through that much energy and, and, and to be able to get that many words and syllables out, how much pain he had to put himself through to be able to express these thoughts to Jesus? How stupid you might think, right? Why would you, in your painful moment, give yourself more pain just to insult the person next to you who's also in pain? But perhaps, But perhaps he thought, Jesus deserved it. You see, in that time, they would have three crosses, and they would put the worst criminal in the middle. That was a well-known fact. So maybe this criminal, seeing Jesus in the middle, thought, oh, well, you must be worse than I am, and, and thought he had every right to criticize Jesus. We might look at that man and think, what a foolish man to waste your last breath, to put yourself through pain in order to, to criticize and condemn Jesus, but do you know that so many times we do the very same thing? I don't know about you, but oftentimes in my moments of pain, when the people that I love the most are next to me and also in pain, somehow I find enough energy to lash out at them, even though in that process I'm actually hurting myself. I'm actually hurting myself. There's a quote by an anonymous person that says, bitterness is a poison we drink, hoping someone else will die. Bitterness is a poison we drink, hoping someone else will die. We judge and we criticize and we gossip and we condemn others, whether they're our friends, our, our family, strangers, the bachelor, whoever it is, right? It's, we find it so easy to hate on others, right? And judge others, criticize others, because we think we are somehow better than they are and that we are in the better position and that we have every right. And we don't realize that in that moment of bitterness, in that moment of envy, in that moment of um, criticism and judgmentalism, that we're actually hurting our own souls. Bitterness is a poison we drink, hoping someone else will die. Just like this mocking, reviling, blaspheming thief in moments of real pain, right? I've also lashed out at God. Not in confession, but in doubt. Can you really save me? If you can save me, then save me. But spoken not 
in desperate need, not because I want Jesus to really save me, but in anger and hurt. Right? I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe you've been through a really difficult time in your life where you feel like God wasn't there, where you feel like he let you down. And in that moment of pain, it's so easy for us to lash out at him and say, why don't you save us? But could it be that in that very moment, Jesus is actually in pain right next to us? And you know what's amazing about this scene of, of the scene of these three crosses is that at the very moment that the soldiers, that the thief on, on the cross next to him, the priests, the people, at the very moment that everybody is mocking Jesus, everybody is doubting Jesus, and everyone is insulting him, right? It's at that very moment that Jesus turns to them and to me. In the very moment when I'm angry at God, in the very moment that I'm, I'm, I'm hurt and lashing out and wondering where God was in my moments of pain, in that very moment, Jesus turns to us and says, Father, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. This is the reality of how Jesus reacts to us. Even though we might be angry and bitter and, and actually causing him and ourselves pain, God actually understands. Jesus doesn't rebuke this man for his insults and his sarcasm and his blasphemy. Instead, Jesus just bleeds for him. And with I, what I imagine to be love and compassion in his eyes. He doesn't say anything back. He doesn't say anything back. But instead, someone else speaks. Someone else speaks for him. I think it's in this moment that Jesus, as he's dying literally on the cross, not just for people who recognize who he is, but for people just like the thief who reject him and who... Um, deny him and who don't appreciate what Jesus is doing and not even acknowledge him as, as king, it's exactly in that moment that we see a true picture of God. You know, a lot of times we kind of um, have these pictures of God, whether it's from, you know, that Old Testament times where we like to think of him as this vengeful God or this all fiery God, or, you know, sometimes we think of God as this God who's going to come in judgment and, you know, spank our wrist for doing wrong, or we have these really distorted pictures of God. But I want us to always come back to this picture, this picture of God in pain, this picture of God in pain who is suffering silently and voluntarily so that we one day can have something more to hope for. And it is in this very moment of God in pain that he actually offers forgiveness it's in this very moment that he offers understanding and compassion. There's a verse in Romans that says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't for the deserving. It wasn't for those who understood. It was for those who were absolutely undeserving of his sacrifice. And I imagine that Jesus, you know, we think about the physical pain he had to endure. But more than that, I think the hardest thing for Jesus was wondering, is this going to be worth it, right? Can you imagine in that moment when everybody is mocking Jesus and everybody is basically denying the fact that he is the Savior? 
for him to have the self-control to stand the cross and say, no, someday, somewhere, someone will appreciate and accept what I'm doing for them. And I imagine, you know, the, the temptation being whispered in his ears, they're never going to get it. They're never going to get it. And for Jesus to have faith in us, for him to say, no, I believe in them. They're going to get it someday. And that's exactly what he did. Even though that thief on the cross was mocking Jesus and using his last breaths to hurl insults at Jesus, instead of lashing back or, or, or you know, correcting him or rebuking him, Jesus just bleeds for him. But the other thief couldn't keep silent, like I said. This is what he says. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 42. It reads, Then one of the criminals who are hanged blasphemed and saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did this man know that Jesus had done nothing wrong? How did this man know who Jesus was? How could he speak such words of faith? I imagine that he actually knew who Jesus was. You have to remember that this is um, three and a half years after Jesus had had already uh, done his public ministry. And Jesus had traveled from city to city all over Israel and uh, in the outskirts as well. And so almost everyone in that time, and it's not like, you know, Melbourne with millions of people in that time period, you know, maybe in Jerusalem, uh, you have about 15,000 people. And there wasn't TV and a lot of other things going on. So when you hear about this man who can heal people, he was the main attraction. Everyone had heard of Jesus. Everyone could, had, had the opportunity to hear his words. And during the three and a half years, Jesus often came to synagogues or public places like the feasts in the temple and would speak openly in the public. So this man had seen Jesus before. This man had heard Jesus before. He knew that there was something special about him. Maybe he had even listened to many of his sermons. Maybe he had been there when Jesus had healed somebody. But just like us, even though he had seen glimpses of Jesus as this savior, he was still too deeply in his own habits, in his own choices. He didn't want to make that decision to follow Jesus. And so he had gone away, maybe because because of the peer pressure of the wrong crowd, maybe because of the bad example of the, of the spiritual leaders of that time. For whatever reason, he persisted in his sinful path until he got to the cross. But you know what? I think as he went through that process with Jesus, as he himself was being flogged and Jesus being flogged next to him, while that other thief and himself probably were cursing every, every time the whip came on their backs, every time, you know, uh, the soldier would drag them, they would curse out, but Jesus would be silent. Groaning, I'm sure, but he didn't lash out. He wasn't angry. He probably heard the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, the conversation between Jesus and the priests. He saw the false witnesses and he saw how Jesus' face the whole time and his eyes constantly showed love and compassion and forgiveness. And when Jesus' hands were being nailed to the cross, in that very moment for Jesus to turn to those soldiers and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In that moment... 
of the greatest, weakest moment of one person's life. Can you imagine when you're being crucified, you look extremely vulnerable. But in that moment of weakness, this man saw divinity. And someone once said, one of the greatest evidence of divinity is the humility of Jesus. Because as a human being, there's so many extraordinary things we can achieve. But one of the hardest things for us to do is to humble ourselves. And it says in the Bible that Jesus humbled himself from being God to being a human being, to being a baby, to being crucified on the cross, the worst death of all, being hung naked on the cross. And when this man saw this humility of Jesus and the compassion and forgiveness he was able to impart to his enemies, this man realized this is God. And you know what's amazing is that in this moment when not even his disciples believed in him, you have to keep that in mind, right? Even his disciples were in despair at this moment. In this moment, they don't believe Jesus is the Christ. In this moment, they're thinking, oh, all our hopes are disappointed. He's dying. This is it. In that moment when the priests rejected Jesus, in that moment when no one, no one believed in Jesus, this man crucified next to Jesus believed you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the savior of the world. And he used his last breaths, painful as they were, to express faith in him. And so then he says, Lord, remember me when you're coming to your kingdom. And what is Jesus's response? He says, surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This wasn't easy for Jesus to say. Once again, he had to scrape his back against that raw wood. Once again, he had to pull himself up with the nail, you know, on his feet. But it was worth it. Can you imagine? This must have been the most beautiful sentence this man has ever heard. And it must have been such a comfort for Jesus too. When I think about the last kind of moments of Jesus' life, I think to myself, here in the darkest time of his life, when even his disciples betrayed him, this stranger, right? Stranger in the sense that they hadn't interacted much before, gives Jesus, I think, one of the greatest comforts he possibly could have. Because while he's hanging there on the cross, this one person's confession and belief in him, I think, gave Jesus courage to finish the work, knowing that it will be worth it. This is what one of my favorite uh, books about Jesus says in a book called Desire of Ages. The writer says, while the leading Jews deny him and even the disciples doubt his divinity, the poor thief upon the brink of eternity calls Jesus Lord. Many were ready to call him Lord when he wrought miracles and after he had risen from the grave, but none acknowledged him as he hung dying upon the cross except the penitent thief who was saved at the 11th hour. While the reviling thief caused pain to himself and Jesus, this repentant thief brought comfort to Jesus and therefore also to himself. He was able to die with perfect peace. What a contrast at Calvary. The sin bearer forgiving sin and imparting hope in the middle, one who rejects this gift and feels more pain and the other who accepts this sacrifice and is able to experience peace. All three of them dealt with suffering completely differently, even though they were all going through the exact same thing. Do you long for peace that passes all understanding? 
the peace that can stay calm in the midst of storms in your life, the peace that only Jesus can bring, where he suffers not just with us but for us, where he's saying, look, I know you're suffering. I'm sorry, but I'm going to be right here suffering with you, making sure that to the end you have assurance of hope to come. It's true that Jesus did not free all three of them from the cross in that moment, but that wasn't his goal. But what's also true is he told him, I'm telling you today, I'm telling you right now, you will be with me in paradise. And it's that assurance of salvation, that assurance of the future that gives us that hope and that peace to be able to go through difficult, painful times in the present. I said that this sermon is about how many thieves? Three. So we've got the the mocking, insulting thief. We've got the repentant thief. Where's the third one? If you turn to Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 to 26, uh, this is another book that tells the story of Jesus and um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus. It says, now at the feast, the governor, um, this is Pilate, was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Do you know that if you look in John, like I said, the other book that describes the life of Jesus, in John chapter 18, verse 40, sorry, John chapter 18, verse 40, it says, then they all cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a what? Robber or a thief. In other words, that cross, remember I said that the middle is reserved for the most guilty. And so in other words, when they prepared those three crosses, the Roman uh, government, that middle cross was meant for Barabbas. He was the worst criminal. But of course, uh, the Jewish leaders had plotted in such a way that they brought Jesus on a Friday night and they rushed through the trial process, right? Jesus was kind of a surprise um, replacement. And Pilate thought he was being very clever. He thought, you know what? I think Jesus is innocent. Maybe if I offer them the choice of Jesus and Barabbas, the worst criminal, surely they will pe- they will choose Jesus. But what he didn't anticipate was, like it says here, the envy and, and just the anger and just the bitterness and um, um, the, the evil that was driving Jesus to the cross. And so in the end, Jesus actually took the place of Barabbas. Literally took the place of Barabbas on the cross. And you know, I wondered to myself, What happened to Barabbas? Did he appreciate the second chance at life? He was completely released. It wasn't even, oh, he's not killed anymore. He was completely released. Did he appreciate this gift? Did he go on to 
to live a life of ministry and blessing? Did he at least stop stealing and murdering? You know, there's actually no record of him in history. We don't know what he did with his second chance. My question for us this afternoon is, which thief do you identify with the most? Do you feel like you've been the doubting thief who in your moments of pain have been blind to the Savior next next to you? Perhaps in your moment of pain, you, you were so focused on your own pain and your own bitterness that you lost sight of the value of faith. The good news, if you feel like that thief today, is that Jesus offers forgiveness, absolutely unconditional forgiveness. Will we believe like the repentant thief did, that Jesus is able to forgive us and that he is able to save us? He saw in the sufferings of a man the love of the divine. And so he spoke words of hope and blessing that brought comfort and happiness to Jesus. Are you that repentant thief today? Or perhaps this afternoon you identify with Barabbas. Perhaps you've never even really known about Jesus before. Perhaps you've all of a sudden just realized that you've been given a second chance. And I guess the question for you today is, what will be your choice? Will you behave through feeling or faith? Will we focus on our present sinfulness or the hope of future holiness? Will we choose to be forgiven or will we hold on to our guilt? Will we be a blessing or a curse to those who suffer around us? And you know, every day, I don't know about you, but every day I face this choice. Every moment that my son Micah throws his spoon that has, you know, lots of food on the floor, and it just splatters all over the kitchen. I have that choice. How am I going to respond, you know, with my words, with my action, with my facial expressions? In that moment where obviously he's unhappy, right? Doesn't like the food or the temperature or who knows what. He's unhappy. Is my choice going to be to respond to him in his moment of grumpiness with the same? Or will I choose in that moment through the power of God and through prayer to say, you know what? I'm going to respond to you with forgiveness and grace. And whether it's my husband, my mom, whoever it is, my friends, every day we have um, moments where we have that choice. How will we use our words? Will our words bring comfort and hope and blessing or pain? And in that moment of pain that the other person experiences, it actually hurts us too, doesn't it? Even if it might hurt, not hurt us in that moment, it hurts the relationship and long-term. It, it really erodes away our character. And so this afternoon, as we are at this crossroads, my prayer is that as we focus on the forgiveness and the compassion of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, that we too would be inspired to actually echo the blessing um, and the words of Jesus. And I pray that through looking at Jesus, that we would find hope and courage to live in faith. And I pray that our last words would be just like Jesus's, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Amen.
Finding myself at a loss for words And the funny thing is, it's okay The last thing I need is to be heard But to hear what you would say Father God, we ask that you would speak to us words of hope and forgiveness so that we too would be inspired to speak words of blessing and comfort to others. And I pray that you would forgive us for the many times we have hurt others and ourselves with our words. And I pray that um, by really experiencing forgiveness from you, that we'd be able to forgive others. And Father, I pray that as we go into our discussion, that we would be able to be transparent, that we would be able to um, really find practical ways that we can apply the message that you gave to us today into our daily lives. I pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> 